There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm okay. You're okay, but why do we say okay? Confused? It's okay. Let's help you know a little more about the word okay. If you want to start a new language, one that isn't English or Mandarin, and you want to get the most people in the world on board to start learning it, the first word you might want to add is okay. There are no reliable stats on this, but okay is frequently referred to as the most spoken word on the planet. It probably isn't. Ye in Mandarin or the in English are probably spoken more often just because they're the most common words in the two most widely spoken languages on the planet. However, it's arguable that OK is the most widely spoken word on the planet since it's been borrowed into dozens of languages. Babbel, which makes language learning programs, says OK has made appearances in Spanish, Dutch, Arabic, Hebrew, Korean, Japanese, Mandarin, Taiwanese, French, Russian, Indonesian, German, Maldivian, Malay, Urdu, Punjabi, Filipino, and more. You hear it in non-English movies, in TV shows. In fact, if you don't speak the language, it kind of jumps out at you when you're hearing something in another language, when they say, okay, and I bet you every taxi driver on earth says it. So how did that come about? Honestly, nobody knows. The first use of OK in print appears to have happened in the March 23rd, 1839 edition of the Boston Morning Post. If you think ads are too prevalent on the web these days, take a look at the March 23rd, 1839 Boston Morning Post. It's four pages long. The entire newspaper is four pages long, and a good three and a half pages of that are ads. On the front page, the first column has ships and houses for sale or let. The second column is called Business Cards. It starts with two competing listings for sellers of silvery. The third and fourth columns are lists of auctions. The fifth column has some poetry and a cure for headaches. And the final column talks about all the toasts done in honor of St. Patrick's Day the previous Monday. And that column ends with an excerpt from the Bangor, Maine Democrat denying a report from the New York Herald claiming that a town near Bangor had burned President Martin Van Buren in effigy. That's the front page. It's not until you get to the second page that you see actual news, the news of the Democratic State Convention, the local Whig Party nominations, a wanted item for a small kitten for Caleb to play with while doing chores for the governor, which 
now that I think about it, is probably some wry political satire, but could also be an ad for a kitten, uh, given all the ads in this thing. While most people in the city were likely consumed with laughing about that kitten joke, or possibly trying to find a kitten for Caleb, a few may have looked right below it at a two-paragraph takedown of the Providence Journal's coverage of the Anti-Bell Ringing Society. Now, before I get to the actual written reference, we need to get our minds in a more 19th century frame of mind, all right? So let's try to think like they did. Back in those days, younger people liked to have fun shortening words into initialisms. OMG, I know, how primitive, LOL. But such was the way of the youth of the 1830s. For example, SP was used instead of small potatoes to mean something wasn't very important. GT for gone to Texas, meaning somebody went really far away or disappeared on and stopped being around. AWALY or A-W-A-L-Y for are we all laughing yet? That one sounds kind of modern. And KG for no go, K-N-O-W go, but it was a play on no go. That was a feature of the initialisms of the day, changing the spellings of the real words and then using the initials of the intentionally inaccurate spellings to obscure the underlying meaning. How else are you going to mess with the olds? So two usages for something being in good shape were O-W for all right, O-L-L-W-R-I-G-H-T, all right, and OK for all correct, O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-C-T. Many of these had been in use for a decade before they showed up in print, likely because we had to wait for these prankster college kids to graduate and become newspaper editors. And newspaper editors definitely picked these up as fun games to see if their public could figure them out. Now, while you certainly wouldn't use them in a serious story like burning President Martin Van Buren in effigy, a story about, say, the anti-bell ringing society was a perfect venue for it. Which brings us to another tradition of the time— Imaginary clubs founded on inside jokes. The New England Historical Society calls our attention to the Association of Presidents of Bankrupt Insurance Companies, as well as the Mammoth Cod Association. Those are just a couple of examples. They were non-existent, used to announce non-existent meetings in newspapers as a running joke. The Anti-Bell Ringing Society, for example, was formed as a joke when someone noticed that there was an ordinance on the books in Boston that said, and I quote, No person, unless duly licensed by the mayor and alderman, shall ring or cause to be rung any bell or other instrument in any street to give notice of the exercise of any business or calling. Outraged by this overreach of occupational licensing, the Anti-Bell Ringing Society filed a case in court to overturn the ordinance. Sadly... They never paid the filing fee, so it never actually made it on the docket. However, in the time-honored tradition of the troll, they loved it when people missed the joke and criticized them, so much so that they invented critics in order to have an argument with them in the participating newspapers and hopefully make people think there was something to the whole charade. You probably thought that was a new thing, but it's not. Newspapers willingly took part in this, and the Boston Morning Post was one of them. There were 43 daily newspapers in Boston at the time, after all, so you had to do something to grab attention. For example, in June 1838, the Post reported that, and I quote, 
Elliot Brown Esquire, secretary of the Boston Young Men's Society for Meliorating the Condition of the Indians, F.A.H., fell at Hoboken, New Jersey, on Saturday last at 4 o'clock p.m. in a duel, W.O.O.O.F.C., with one of our first citizens. What measures will be taken by the society in consequence of this heart-rending event, RTBS, remains to be seen. You see, one of the many newspapers of Boston carried fake news of a duel— And it was clearly for fun because they used initialisms. In mid-March 1839, the Anti-Bell-Ringing Society announced a train trip to New York City in order to advance their cause. The Boston Post duly reported on it. Reported. Everyone in on the joke knew there was no train trip any more than there was a cause. However, maybe... A newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island, ran a story noting that no one from the Anti-Bell-Ringing Society appeared to be on that train to New York at the given time. Another thing you had to do in a world of 43 competing daily Boston newspapers was report what other newspapers had done. We think that thing with bloggers quoting other bloggers was bad, but it was way worse in 1839. In fact, half of the short amount of stories that aren't ads in the Boston Post are them posting things from other newspapers, like the one from the Banger Main Post talking about the New York Herald talking about Martin Van Buren being burned in effigy. So, it was on that fateful kitten-searching day of March 23, 1839, below the possibly sharp political satire aimed at the governor, and... Above a piece about a young man of respectable connections passing several thousand dollars worth of forged banknotes, that there was this. Quite an excitement was caused here yesterday by an announcement in the Boston Post that a deputation from the Boston ABRS, it's a gloss for anti-bell ringing society, would pass through the city on their way to New York. Nothing but the short notice prevented the Marine artillery from turning out to do honor to the occasion. The report proved unfounded, however— and has led to the opinion that Post is not the organ of that illustrious body. The above is from the Providence Journal, the editor of which was a little too quick on the trigger on this occasion. Now, I'm going to pause in reading this for a second before we get to the history-making part of these two paragraphs. So, we have the Post excerpting the journal, if this is even an actual excerpt from an actual paper, and making... Making a lewd joke, right? That bit about post and the organ? They're 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 saying what we think they're saying, right? Anyway, the section continues. We said not a word about our deputation passing through the city of Providence. We said our brethren were going to New York, and they did go. The chairman of the Committee on Charity Lecture Bells is one of the deputation, and perhaps if he should return to Boston via Providence, he of the journal and his train band would have his contribution box, etc. okay, all correct, and cause the corks to fly like sparks upward. That is dank with some 1830 slang, that is. Uh, I love that train, okay, and sparks are all italicized. Uh, To translate this, I think, what they're saying is, we never said the society was going through Providence. We said we were going to New York, and we went. However, the chairman, who I'm going to guess is probably the person writing this, is one of the group, and if he goes through Providence on the way back, maybe the reporter from Providence will buy the drinks. 
The key part is when the writer ponders if the Providence reporter would bring money. He writes, have his contribution box, etc. Okay, all correct. Have your money on you. It's a throwaway line. It's a hack night attempt to work another of the crazy, trendy initialisms into the prose. And it made history. Because that, my friends, is the first written evidence of the use of OK in that sentence. Subsequent uses became more and more common. Some early uses added all correct or all correct, what's called a gloss or an explanation, uh, right after it, as did that first use in 1839. But soon, the usage became common enough that you could just write OK and people knew what you meant. I mean, as long as you were writing a puff piece, you're still not going to use it in a story about burning Martin Van Buren in effigy. Not yet. You might be forgiven for jumping to the conclusion that this confirms the idea that like college students at a Boston school like Harvard invented OK. It certainly bears out that they might have made it popular, but it's quite possible the phrase was in circulation before that. In fact, I'd argue that familiarity with it in other contexts might explain why it stuck around and got more popular while KG and RTBS withered away. There's a particle in the Choctaw language called OK, usually spelled O-K-E-H. It's used at the end of a sentence as an affirmative. The earliest written evidence is from Cyrus Byington and Alfred Wright's translation of the Christian Bible into Choctaw in 1825. They ended many sentences with OK, translated as it is so. Byington also included OK in his grammar of the Choctaw language and his dictionary of the Choctaw language. There's also the fact that in West African languages Wolof and Bantu, there is a word WAK, W A W K A Y, and in Mande, the phrase O K E, O K, which have a meaning similar roughly to yes indeed. A 1784 publication of A Tour in the United States of America by J.F.D. Smythe quotes a North Carolina man held in slavery as saying K, K-A-Y, at the start of a sentence in the way you would use OK at the start of a sentence. And some folks have pointed to the similarity of the Scots phrase Ach, I, for Oh, yes, and the Greek phrase Ola, Kala, meaning all good. It's really impossible to pin down an actual beginning. But all of those variations being in the mix, combined with a mischievous usage among trend-setting folks in Boston in the 1830s, certainly propelled OK into the mainstream. And while there are many examples that accelerated and internationalized its usage, I'm going to give you two I think are key to its spread. The first propelled it in the United States. Let me ask you a question. Who was the first U.S. presidential candidate to use LOL? No idea, right? All right, two of you think you know, but none of the rest of us do, because none of them made it the center of their campaign. None of them were as tied into the youth of their day as never having been burned in effigy in Maine, President Martin Van Buren. You see, President Van Buren was having a tough time getting reelected, especially because there's all those rumors of him being burned in effigy. Some of it was because of the massive unemployment the fact that the banks had run out of silver and gold and all paper money was backed by silver and gold. So, okay, half the banks in the country went out of business, not to mention the kitten problem. But the really big problem was the Whigs. Yeah, they had really rebounded. 
They'd recovered a bunch of members who had gone over to the anti-Masonic party, brought them back in, and were actually able to hold a national convention where they nominated Ohio's William Henry Harrison for president and John Tyler as his running mate. Harrison had fought in a famous battle at a place called Tippecanoe, so they had a cracker of a slogan, too. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Now, Van Buren did have some other problems. There's the Panic of 1837, that seven-year-long recession from all the banks closing. He also didn't have a running mate. I mean, not, not a running mate at all. No vice president on the ticket. The sitting vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, not only had run previously under the slogan Rumsey Dumsey Rumsey Dumsey Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh in the 1836 election, that would be enough to disqualify him, but the entire delegation to the Electoral College from Virginia hated him so much that they voted for Van Buren for president, but not Johnson for vice president. They put somebody else on their ticket, meaning that the U.S. Senate had to weigh in and choose the vice president. Now, they chose Richard Mentor Johnson, but he was so unpopular that the Democrats preferred to nominate nobody to be Van Buren's running mate in 1840 rather than pick Johnson again. Okay, okay, so President Van Buren had problems, but the biggest problem, let's all be honest, of all the ones I mentioned, the biggest problem was that Tippecanoe and Tyler II slogan. If President Van Buren could only overcome that, he'd have a chance to make everyone forget that the economy was in ruins on his watch and he couldn't get anyone to be his vice president. Thank goodness, then, that President Van Buren was born in Kinderhook, New York, and as such, was sometimes referred to as Old Kinderhook. And with all those trendy Bostonians running around saying, okay, all the time, well, it was genius, right? President Van Buren claimed that everybody was saying, okay, because of him, old Kinderhook. Vote for okay was his actual campaign slogan. And it was a winner for okay, which gained more exposure and more uptake in the language. President Van Buren lost. Uh, he lost big uh, to Harrison, 234 to 60 electoral votes. He didn't even win his home state of New York. Okay, so the next example that I think accelerated the spread of okay internationally is the dialogue box. You know, that box that pops up on computers and asks you to click okay. As legend has it, Larry Tesler was leading a team of testers to develop the Apple Lisa user interface. Now, originally, they had two buttons on the dialog box, but they were labeled do it and cancel. Apparently, one user kept clicking cancel when it was pretty obvious that you should click do it. And so when they asked him about it, he complained that he was not adult and he did not appreciate this computer calling him such. Do it looked a little on the screen like the word dolt. Now, they had considered using OK, but they thought maybe it was too colloquial. But after this, they decided, you know what, we're going to change do it to OK. The Lisa interface informed the Mac interface, which informed the Windows interface, which informed every dialog box after it, such that for a time, every computer around the world had an OK button. So is is that it? Is that why? Old Kinderhook and Apple? Is that why we all say okay? Well, it's probably not that simple. As you can tell, there are millions of small reasons combining to make this an international word. Lots of folks point out that the sounds O and K are present in almost every language. Not all sounds are. So okay is uniquely acceptable as a borrowed word. And of course, American culture spreading around the world also spread okay. 
Some even argue that okay fills a need for a word that isn't fully yes, but is still affirmative. And yet, some languages already have that word, and they still adopt okay. Whatever the reason, I hope you're okay. And I hope now you know a little more about okay. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.